Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Ladies and gentlemen, uh... can I please have your attention? Jonah Goldberg, host of the Remnant Podcast, brought to you by the Dispatch and Dispatch Media. Um, I'm very excited for today's episode. Um, um, as longtime listeners know, I uh, got my start in Washington working for this guy, Ben Wattenberg, who was sort of um, among his, the hats he wore was he was a um, uh, self-taught demographer, wrote a book called The Birth Dearth, which the argument of which was that Falling populations are a much bigger problem than rising populations. Um, I got to hang out with the great Julian Simon, who we'll talk about in a minute, um, a little bit. It was a, he was, to use a term from social science, an odd duck, but a brilliant guy. And um, and so today, in the spirit of all of that, we have um, a really, I have to say, a fantastic book. I was a little skeptical that about a a book on these themes breaking new ground, but this really does. And um, it is Superabundance, the story of population growth, innovation, and human flourishing on an infinitely bountiful planet. It is written by my my good friend, Marion L. Tupi of the Cato Institute um, and Gail L. Pooley. And there's even a forward by George Gilder and there are blurbs from all these very impressive people that for some god-awful reason they didn't ask me to blurb it. I don't know why. And um, I got to say, the mo- one of the most impressive things, and this is like so inside baseball for, um, for nerds and book nerds, is uh, they managed to actually have a book with a lot of interior charts, many, some of which are in, actually in color. Um, and it's just a beautiful book. It's not coffee table book shaped. But it's the kind of book that you can just pick up and dive in at random spots and learn new or interesting things with a lot of data that's really easily digested and really fun. So with all, with all of that, uh, you know, sort of hype and um, and sizzle out of the way, let's get to the steak. Uh, and by the way, uh, Marion owes me a steak. Uh, Marion Tupi, welcome back to the Remnant. Thank you very much, Jonah. It is lovely to see you. Thanks for having me on your uh, on your podcast. And the reason why I didn't ask you to blurb the book is because I know you love me so much that you couldn't possibly be objective. Fair, fair, fair. <laughs> it's uh, you. You must have really had to torture Steven Pinker into endorsing this thing. Anyway, although Jason Furman endorsing it is a pretty good coup. Um, all right. So, uh, as, as as listeners know, my first question for people with new books is uh, fairly straightforward. Uh, what's your book about? Well, the book uh, is uh, about uh, the relationship between uh, population growth and uh, um, resource abundance. Um, 
many of your listeners, as you already alluded to, will be familiar with uh, Julian Simon and uh, his great bet with uh, Paul Ehrlich back in the 1980s, uh, which Julian Simon won hands down. But the idea that uh, people are a plague upon the planet, a cancer, has not really gone away. And in the last decade or so, I have been seeing the extremist environmentalists uh, getting, well, getting more and more extremist um, in, in sort of uh, perceiving or trying to portray humanity as somehow being, uh, as I said, cancer on the planet. And so I thought of revisiting uh, the, the, the Simon Ehrlich bet from a slightly different perspective, which we will talk about uh, later. Um, this extremism is uh, deeply worrying. Um, and uh, I, I'm, I'm seeing a bifurcation in uh, sort of reportage on population and resources emerging. You have Jack Ma and uh, Elon Musk talking about the dangers of underpopulation in the future. But the usual suspects uh, like AOC and Mara are still talking about humanity as a, as a problem. So hopefully um, the, the fact that this notion is back in the, in, in the media will, uh, uh, will help the book to, to be read by many. A little cleanup work, just so listeners know what we're referring to. The Julian Simon, Paul Ehrlich bet, you correct me if I'm wrong, but the, the basic gist of it was Paul Ehrlich, who was a fetid, revered, mainstream New York Times quoted all the times all the time uh expert uh was of the school that population growth was bad and that scarcity that we were depleting the world's resources and uh Julian Simon was ridiculed um and 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 sort of demonized by people as a crank and he argued no 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 actually human beings are incredibly innovative and ingenious at um, at, at dealing with scarcity. Um, and so they made a bet where they said, um, where Simon told Ehrlich, you can pick any, was it five or 10? I can't remember. It was five. Ehrlich pick, picked five metals. Um, right. And but he told him you could pick any commodities you want. Correct. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And said after X amount of time, they'll either be, Simon said they'll be cheaper. Ehrlich said, that's ridiculous. They'll be more expensive. And, the point is, is that if they're cheaper, that means they are in economic terms, which are the only terms that matter for these purposes, less scarce, right? Scarcity creates high prices, le- you know, uh, abundance creates low prices. And, and Julian Simon won the bet four out of five, went down in price? All, all, of, them, all of them went down when adjusted for inflation. And the bet was for $1,000, which in 1980 was still a good chunk of money. And in 1990, Ehrlich had to send Simon a check for $537. Which was the difference in how much it went down. So it was like a... Correct, correct. It it went down by 36%, the average of these five commodities, uh, nickel, tungsten, tin, um, I'm forgetting a few. Um, But but adjusted for inflation came to $537. And... um, so the thing was that, uh, aside from being obviously a very intelligent man, uh, Simon was incredibly courageous, uh, sort of courage that we need in this country, um, around the world, really. Because the whole 
world was convinced that um, having more people in the world was going to have devastating effects on on the globe. And Simon was really the only scholar out there, uh, you know, the remnant <laughs> screaming, yeah, exactly. screaming, no, 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 this is not how it is. And, and really going against uh, popular wisdom um, like that just takes a lot of courage, which I think that few of us have. Um, now, so uh, Simon and Ehrlich uh, did their bet uh, based on uh, real prices, meaning mm-hmm. inflation adjusted, just so that, I mean, your listeners will know all about inflation because it's back in the news after a 40-year hiatus. But there are really three kinds of prices. One is the nominal price, which you, sh- which you see in the shop every day. The second one is inflation adjusted or real price. That's where you take the nominal price and you take, you take out inflation and that gives you a sort of a sense uh, whether things are getting cheaper or not. Uh, and, uh, but, but, but both prices have one defect uh, and that is that they don't account what is happening to wages, right? They just look mm-hmm. at those prices. And what we've done, we've come up with this notion of a time price which takes into account also the increase in wages. So to calculate the time price is very simple. You just take a nominal price of a good in, say, 1980 and divide it by nominal hourly wage. And you repeat the process in 2020 or 2022. And then that way you can see whether you're working longer or fewer hours in order to accomplish something or to buy something. So whereas nominal and real prices are... Uh, expressed in dollars and cents, uh, time prices are expe- expressed in uh, hours and minutes. Uh, just to give a, an example, if a Hershey bar costs a dollar and you are earning ten dollars an hour, uh, then you have ten Hershey bars in 1980. But if the Hershey bar increases to two dollars, um, but you are making thirty dollars an hour in 2020. Then you are getting 15 Hershey bars. That would be that would be a typical example of a time price, and and so, and so one reason why we thought it was necessary to come up with time prices and to sort of um, uh, systematize them um, was because the media gets it wrong all the time. You open the newspapers and it talks about oil and gas prices being at all time high, and that's because the media usually doesn't account for inflation. And even if they do account for inflation and they note that, you know, gas is not uh, more expensive than it was, say, in 1990, um, they still don't look at what, what's been happening to people's wages. So if, uh, say, 30 years ago you had to work uh, 10 minutes to afford a gallon of gas, but today it's only nine minutes. You are still getting ahead, even though the prices may have risen. Yeah, I mean, the time price thing, which you've been doing a lot of, I should have said you were the founder or, or head of this really incredibly useful um, website run out of Cato called Human Progress. The time price thing is incredibly useful for trying, like, like I don't know how many venetian guilders or whatever you know like no one no one can do these uh you know conversions of of 1993 or 2007 dollars into what they were spending in um you know in the holy roman empire right it's just but it's immediately comprehensible and intuitive to say that for the average human being it took you this many hours to have an hour of of reading light. Yes. Right. Or it took you this many hours to get to, to, to earn a thousand calories of food, um, or this many minutes or whatever. The point is, is that that is a, um, and even though that kind of, it does miss something because life expectancies are so much longer now, 
So actually we have more currency and time to spend than somebody did. Like a hundred hours of your life in 1230 is a bigger chunk of your total lifetime than a hundred hours today, if you think about it. But it's still, it's a good way to, it's a good way to sort of understand. And so like, you know, a, a pound of butter could cost someone hundreds of hours to make a pound of butter or whatever in a way that are, or dozens of hours in a way that it now takes someone eight minutes or two minutes to, to earn enough to have a pound of butter. And it's, it's a way to get around the pure math of the, of adjusting for different currencies and time and inflation and all that. And I think it's a very useful way of looking at things, but um, I want to swing back to something you said earlier about, the extremists talking about how humanity is a cancer. I get it. You're absolutely right. Extremists, it's an extreme position and extremists are saying it. I'm not disputing that. But I think that sometimes there's a problem on the right. I guess it's a problem on the left too, but um, it's just, it manifests itself differently. There's a problem on the right, including on the libertarian right, and particularly among eggheads like yourself, um, <laughs> to to want to have fights with other eggheads, right? You want to fight with, you know, Julian Simon wants to have an argument with Paul Ehrlich, right? Um, you want to have an argument with, um, you know, the head of environmental studies at UC Berkeley or something, because you guys speak the same language and you're on opposite side of things. But it seems to me that the, the bigger problem, and you get into this at different angles in the book, the bigger, the bigger opponent to this idea that things are getting better, that humanity is actually good for the world, the population is good for the world, aren't intellectuals. It's the human brain and it's sort of mainstream popular culture, right? And because this is a theme in America, not just in American culture, but in world culture that manifests itself throughout almost like I, everywhere that, you know, certainly the masses are scary and that runaway population is scary um, and that fi resources are finite and um, and I just sometimes worry that if that like my hunch, let me put it this way, the movie, the matrix probably did more to convince large numbers of Americans that human beings are a virus, right? Cause there's this whole Dr. S uh, Mr. Smith argument where he says, I figured it out. You, you, humans are a virus and they're just eating away at the planet. That was more compelling than anything that comes from some academic in terms of its impact and its injection straight into the mind, you know, its inception into the popular culture. Um, what is it about human brains that makes those motifs, those themes, what makes them go through the, the permeable barrier of our brain? The break, what makes them more likely to break through the blood-brain barrier than all the rest? Well, before getting to the human brain, I think, um, you know, getting the intellectual history right and uh, sort of... Uh, determining or trying to find out where these ideas came from is important in itself. And God knows there are plenty of eggheads in the book, but, um, uh, but it, it, we are not, we are actually not trying to have an argument with the eggheads. And I'll tell you why is because after the Simon Ehrlich wager, the environmental movement uh, to some extent has moved away the smarter parts of the environmental movement. And that's why I always distinguish between extreme environmentalists and, and smart, intelligent and well-meaning environmentalists. Um, uh, you know, the, 
the intelligent, well-meaning ones started talking about ecological sinks. In other words, what are we doing with the byproduct of human activity, things like trash or uh, toxic fumes and whatever. Um, But that hasn't penetrated uh, the, the public uh, the, the, the public opinion as much as we would like. The, the public, and I will get to your second point in a moment, is still under the perception that more people mean running out of resources. And a perfect example of that, and this is why we are not picking a fight with the eggheads, but with, but the, but with the zeitgeist, is the shooter from Walmart in El Paso. Uh, he killed something like 25 people, maybe three or four years ago. He left behind him a uh, memorandum or a testament or something like that saying, um, the world is running out of resources and you people will not stop using or overusing resources. And therefore, somebody has to do the job of um, of, of making uh, the, the numbers of humans lesser. And in fact, in the third part of the book, we have a number of instances of these mass shooters who have left behind um, basically Malthusian manifestos, seeing overpopulation as a, as a significant problem. So yes, we are fighting the zeitgeist, and you're absolutely right that the zeitgeist is formed also by Hollywood, not just people like uh, Bill Maher, for example, who on his show in 2019 basically said that the, the world has a big, the biggest problem in the world is that we are using far too many resources, but also movies. Uh, you have Thanos and the Infinity War. Uh, you have Kingsman. Uh, there was another one, Inferno. And who can forget the 1974 movie with Charlton Heston, Soil and Green, where when you know the, the world has no food at all. And so when people die, they are turned into these biscuits, which are then fed to uh, people who are still alive. And that movie... Spoiler alert. Yeah. And uh, well, it's a 1974 <laughs> movie. And, and Charlton, Charlton Heston, as always, uh, overacts. But, um, but the movie, the, but here's the funny thing, the, the movie is actually set in 2022 right this year Mm -hmm. so it's actually quite kind of fortuitous so yes so so the culture is still dominated by by these malthusian concerns uh what goes on i mean you're familiar with a lot of negativity biases uh Mm -hmm. but i think that the fundamental one is misapprehension or or rather the 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 confusion between finality or finitude of atoms on earth and what you do with those atoms right so when people to the extent that People contemplate the world. They see it as a, uh, as a, as a finite planet, which it is. Uh, there are only so many atoms on Earth. But, but how we interact with those atoms will, of course, depend on the growth of human intelligence. So Thomas Sowell, one of my favorite economists, pointed out a long time ago that the Stone Age man had exactly the same amount of resources that we have Today, the difference between his standard of living and our standard of living is the knowledge we, which we bring to, um, uh, to, to the resources that we have. And uh, so by combining and recombining atoms, we can, we can produce prosperity. And we don't necessarily have to run out of, of atoms because we'll just use them in ever more um, a valuable way until the moment when uh, we start pulling in asteroids filled with uh, with resources or start mining on the moon. Yeah, I mean, like our mutual friend and your co-author in your last book, Ron Bailey, uh, he was the first one to sort of tutor me on substitutions, you know, where... That's right. You know, you in this country, something like ha- a quarter, I'm going to mangle it, but something like a quarter of 
all wood was simply used for railroad ties. And we used wood as the primary construction material in this country. And we used wood as a primary fuel source in this country. And then we came up with a better source of fuel. And we used to use whale oil for light. And then we came up with a better source for light. There's a tendency, I think we're wired, again, as as sort of a hunter-gatherer species, is we have this tendency to think that when we find some new substance, that we've discovered this wealth outside of ourselves, right? It's like, oh my gosh, we just discovered oil. We're, you know, that's, that's the brilliant, that's, that's, that's where this new wealth comes from. When in reality, the, the, the primary source of wealth is in our brains that allowed us to figure out, okay, we got to replace these bad sources of fuel with better sources of fuel. Let's see if this black goo will work. And because um, nothing is valuable there are very few things that are of any valuable without human ingenuity applied to them um, because the value for most things is, is, is only leveraged by, what, by, the, by the knowledge that we apply to it. And, you know, the substitution of X, so I, I mean, it's not just like what we do with atoms. It's just like we pick different atoms, right? Well, we, that's we, correct. That's correct. Let me give you an example, which I just read about last month. As you know, the world is mad about... Uh, uh, environmental uh, about electric vehicles and uh, one of the big stories in the last few years was what is going to happen if we run out of all the lithium because the, the best batteries right now are lithium ion batteries and then some people i think it was at mit or stanford they looked into it and said you know what maybe even better than lithium ion is sodium ion now sodium is just mm-hmm. Salt, you know, it can be gotten right. anywhere. We have plenty of that. So th- this is a perfect example how, because you've got this technology, which is uh, electric vehicle batteries, and you need one substance, you start projecting into the future what will happen when when all the cars are electric and we need lithium ion batteries. Well, who says we need lithium ion batteries? There are, you know, there are right. there are hundred. Uh, Paul Roma made this point some time ago. There are hundred. Um, elements in the periodic table, right? And a two-compound material uh, like lithium-ion, um, you know, that, that, that means 100 times 99 possible combinations, which means almost 10,000 combinations that you have to get through or might have to get through in order to come up with sodium-ion. Now, when you get to four-compound materials, the number of combinations in that is 94 million. And when you get to 10 compound combinations, there are more possible combinations than the number of seconds since the Big Bang 14 billion years ago. So the point is that the world simply hasn't had enough people and enough time to figure out uh, even a fraction of what we can do with these atoms that we already have that could potentially change the world for the better. So let's go back to the uh, the population stuff. It does feel to me like the concern about overpopulation is mostly in the rearview mirror, which is one of the reasons I was sort of skeptical about mm-hmm. the overpop about the population point. I mean, certainly I'm a little older than you, but like overpopulation was almost a phobia when I was a kid. Yeah, um, all over the place in popular culture. That was Paul Ehrlich's famous book was the Population Bomb. And it feels like the argument has since changed to it's not overpopulation. It's an overpopulation of rich white people in certain countries 
they're using too many of the world's resources as measured by how they contribute to climate change, which is that there are flaws with that argument, but it's definitely a different argument. Are global institutions, are the UN institutions, I used to follow stuff much more closely, are there still major institutions out there that are organized about fighting overpopulation the way they once were? You still have intimations of that, but it's not really, you, you look, uh, the effect of overpopulation, quote unquote, on the world can take many different shapes and forms. What concerns me, really, more than anything else, uh, and, and it forms a huge part of this book, is the notion uh, that people should have fewer babies uh, for a variety of, uh, quote unquote, environmental reasons. And I think that you would agree with me that we, what we do have a problem with is, uh, do we have a problem with it? Potentially, we have a problem with uh, fast drawing, dropping fecundity in uh, the world's most advanced countries. Uh, as your listeners will undoubtedly know, a replacement level population a, a woman, it, it requires 1.1 babies, sorry, 2.1 babies per woman per lifetime, right? So in the United States is 1.7. Uh, our population is still growing because of immigration. Um, but in South Korea, for example, is 0.9. Right. And there are something like 100 out of 200 countries in the world where people are having um, many fewer babies than what is necessary for for replacement level. And what we are saying in the book is that decisions about how many children people should have is not made in a vacuum. It is made within a certain zeitgeist, within a certain ideological um, sort of uh, well, it's ideological zeitgeist. And if you hear from the newspapers and from the media and elsewhere all the time that bringing another child into the world is a crime, then of course that, and, and that their futures are going to be horrible, then of course that impacts fecundity. And, and you can just open newspaper any day. Recently, there was an interview between Jane, Jane Goodall and uh, that, that great man, uh, Prince Harry, the Duke of Sussex, uh, where uh, she berates him for uh, having for for having a desire to to have uh, two children rather than one she says have one child that should be the maximum and you know people read these things and uh, take them seriously and uh, make their plans accordingly and what we are saying in the book is that um, um, obviously people should be free to have as many babies as they want but to the extent that that they are concerned about um, you know, is this good or bad for the planet? Not only is it not not only are the children going to have better futures if, if the past is any kind of uh, uh, you know if if we are to learn from the past what has happened, but also that every additional human being comes into the world not just with an empty stomach but but a mind, right? And and this is the key, really. This is why this is why underpopulation could be a serious problem, and that is that. And that is that a population of 8 billion people is much more likely to come up with a solution to some sort of an intractable problem than a population of 1 billion people. Um, um, you are familiar with your Schumpeter and the Schumpeterian growth, which is basically based on, on innovation. And uh, innovations come from human mind. It's only human beings which are capable of having ideas which lead to inventions, then test them in the marketplace to come up with innovations, which then are transformed into production growth and, and uh, increased standards of living. And uh, the fewer people we have, the, the, the 
the lower the likelihoods that we are going to have these brand new ideas which are going to change the world for the better. So that's that's another sort of direction that the book takes you. Okay, so uh, I, I want to cue readers that we are going to get to some of the data and the examples of how the world has gotten better and actually is better and 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 we are richer than we've ever been and all that kind of stuff. But uh, this moment is a good place to segue to something I, I want to ask about, which is that maybe it's because I am already convinced, you know, when I buy a lot of these arguments, you helped me out when I was working on Suicide of the West with a lot of this data about how, you know, sort of fleshing out the the great fact or the great enrichment or the miracle, or whatever, you know, like the Deirdre McCloskey argument about how we sort of leapt out of our historical stasis 300 years ago. So I'm, I'm largely persuaded by, I shouldn't say largely, I'm entirely persuaded. I'm a proselytizer of this stuff. And that's why I agree with you on that. And I think this, this book, if anything, infuriates me because it should have come out about 18 months before I started writing my book. So that way I would, you would have saved me about a year and a half of work. Um, and, and, and we can get into the stuff about where capitalism comes from and all that, because you have some interesting stuff in there on that. But, um, it seems to me like the thing I am now increasingly worried about is the lethargy that comes from superabundance. Mm-hmm. Richard Reeves and Brookings are going to have him on on the podcast in a couple in a week or so about his new book about the problem with men. Nick Everstat just had this very good piece in the Wall Street Journal about how just millions of men during the pandemic just said goodbye to the workforce and started playing video games. Yeah, you can and the the my colleague Lyman Stone makes this point about, you know, uh, fertility rates. One of the main drivers of lower fertility rates, um, it's hard to tease out all the different factors, but w- indisputably one of them is, is that young people are just having too good a time. It, that, that, that if you like going on vacations and you like, you like the life the way you have it in a sort of bespoke way and, boredom has kind of been erased in young people because there's always something to do in a world of screens. The thing I worry about is that we've kind of, we're, we're, we're spoiling large numbers of people in a way that takes a certain amount of the dynamism and, and aspirational sort of, I'm going to solve this problem kind of thing because they're too comfortable. It's a little bit like the difference between 1984 and Brave New World. We got a lot of Soma out there. Um, and, um, and I'm wondering what you think about, because I think ultimately your point is absolutely right. The most important thing out there are ideas. They're ways of viewing the world. They're ways about thinking about what a productive life is. And I worry that one of the, the what do you call the ecological sinks? I worry that one of the sort of cultural sinks of superabundance is we're creating large swaths of people for whom the Protestant work ethic or whatever you want to call it just seems like too much work compared to playing Call of Duty or sitting around smoking pot and watching something on one of your many screens. Yeah, um, that's an excellent question. And I wonder to what extent uh, part of the reason why uh, so many people are able to, um, um, so many able to, People, you know, are sitting at home uh, watching video games and smoking pot, uh, is because uh, uh, the, the, the 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 government support and the state support for um, 
basically doing nothing uh, could potentially reach levels at which you disincentivize people from applying themselves at all. In other words, a society can reach uh, a, a point of wealth where um, where the uh, where the welfare checks uh, become so large that um, that they are perfectly capable of. Uh, of paying down for a single room down somewhere in the basement, um, internet connection, and um, and you know, and, and Netflix subscription. Um, that, that's certainly that's certainly possible. Um, we'll see how it plays out. Uh, the reason why I'm a little bit a little bit cautious about this is because I remember that there has never been a generation which did not think that. The succeeding generation was worse than than, mm-hmm. than 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 the current or the previous generations. You know, in this country, we have the greatest generation of the Second World War. Then we have the baby boomers. Uh, then are people like like us, and then they are the younglings. But when you go to history, when you read history, there is there are a few things which tied together, and one of them is a constant complaints about the youth being somehow more degenerate more effeminate, more, uh, more useless. Um, Cato the Elder made a career out of uh, saying that Rome was finished because the young were incapable of carrying a sword and, and fighting for the motherland. And this was at a time when ancient Rome was constituted of nothing but um, little bits and pieces of the Italian peninsula. Um, and uh, Rome would only reach its territorial, uh, territorial maximum 300 years later, and it had 500 or 600 years to live. But the point is that um, uh, the, the point is that that all that degeneracy and effeminacy that Cato the Elder saw sorted itself out with succeeding generations of people who have accomplished great things. Um, and uh, it's a sort of a motif throughout throughout history that young people sort of strike us as being uh, uh, aimless. Um, uh, but, um, and, and, and th- th- that sort of ties into another problem with the human mind, which is that we always think that we are on a precipice of history. This is what, uh, this is what Madrid Lee calls the turning point-itis, that uh, whereas all of these concerns may have been resolved by past generations, it is the current one, us right now, who are living at a point in time when everything is going to change and all of these historical patterns are going to resolve themselves, um, are, are, are going to be um, no longer applicable and the world is going to start anew. And maybe that's a sign of, uh, um, of, of profound narcissism. Yeah, no, I mean, just on that, uh, I don't know if you put yourself through watching Joe Biden's speech last night, I mean, last week from um, from Philadelphia, but... Constitutional Hall, but like when he says, "I believe that this is one of these inflection points." My wife, who's a professional speechwriter, you know, we both look at each other. Oh God! And my wife was like, "I would love to see a montage of politicians <laughs> saying this is the this is an inflection point, right?" Because it's like it it always seems to coincide with the the moment where a sitting politician wants something that we are at this time of choosing, right? That, that this is the, the, the wheels of history are, are finally grinding together. I, this is one of the reasons I love Calvin Coolidge, right? Because Calvin, Calvin Coolidge was not an inflection point guy. And I would love to hear more politicians saying, hey, no, 
we got some problems, but like, like this is not one of the great hinges of history. Um, go on, carry on, <laughs> carry about your business. Nothing to see here. We're, we're doing the things we need to do. Um, you know, it was a Calvin Coolidge who said, if you see 10 problems rolling down a hill towards you, uh, do nothing and nine will roll into a ditch before they reach you. I'm not saying that attitude's always right, but if we had a little bit more of that kind of attitude in, in political leadership, um, we would stop freaking out about some of these trends that are really just sort of snapshots and that when you put them all together, things are getting better than, than people realize. Yeah, a, a couple of things on that. I mean, one reason why we may be more aware of um, sort of social dejection and Weltschmerz, uh, um, as one of my favorite authors likes to use that word, <laughs> is because the social media just puts it right in our face all the time. In other words, people who would normally just live out their lives in, in the way that you describe um, can now, you know, we are just much more aware of these things because because of social media, which is which is sort of, um, which is immediate and so intimate, um, the, whereas before. Um, so I, I wonder to what, but, but I am familiar with Nick's work on, on, on missing men. And um, one thing which ought to be borne in mind, I think, is that the, the slope of human progress is, uh, is, not, is not smooth. It is jagged. Uh, very often humanity makes two steps forward and one step back. Steven Pinker likes to say that uh, if everything was working out everywhere for everyone at all times, that would not be progress. That would be miracle, right? So there, there are there are ways. I mean, right now, I would say that we are certainly living through one of those moments when humanity has taken two steps forward and now is taking a step back. We have a war in uh, uh, in, in Ukraine. We have a catastrophe of uh, uh, energy prices. Um, because partly because of decisions taken by by governments um, in the past, we have the rise of uh, populism. Um, but again, uh, you know, looking at the long term trends um, is that is why it's important, and also to try to distill lessons from history and to identify why have things worked in the past. Nothing that I write is supposed to guarantee human progress. Um, not, nothing says that, you know, no, nothing is guaranteed. We could still destroy everything. We, we are certainly capable of doing that. But if nothing else, then human progress, the, the stuff that you write about and I write about, will be a, a historical document showing that for a brief spell in human history, let's call it 200 or 250 years, humanity has figured out a way of sustaining innovation of constant improvement of humanity along many different dimensions of human well-being uh, before we decided to abandon it for whatever crazy reasons. Look, I'm with you, and I think your point about the these damn kids today is a very good one and a very old one. Um, uh, at the same time, I mean, you're... Uh, this, is, this, is, this, this may seem like faint praise, but you are a more data-driven guy than I am. And the the simple fact is is that on the on the fecundity point, which is a big part of your your argument, is that we are seeing just collapses in fertility rates around the world, and that has real consequences, right? Yes. That is not, and so that is not. Oh, so like yeah, these kids who are playing Call of Duty and getting high would have better lives 
and more productive lives if they got off their asses and 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 were more productive. Um, that's one argument. But then there's the other argument of large numbers of people not marrying, not having kids, not having kids within marriage, and not getting to a replacement rate for our population. I know you you know this stuff better than I do, but you know you know Baumol's disease. You know the 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 bomb the this Baumol's argument disease, about. Yeah. Yeah, in economics, which says that, like, it explains why part of the reason why we have inflation and prices for things like education is because the amount, the value of time and 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 resources that go into getting a PhD in something, they go up in ways that. Um, so, what what's the example? It's like if I go into a store, if I go into a salon in Dupont Circle and ask for a haircut, it's. $45 or something like that. If I go into one in Karachi, it's $5. Yeah. And it's because the, the, the time and investment premium on labor costs or like for, I guess Bumble's famous example was a string quartet, right? Like string quartets used to be everywhere because it was cheap to be able to hire a string quartet. Now to become a great musician or a professional musician, those people are turning down better paying things. So they demand better compensation. All right. My point, the reason I bring this up or it comes to mind, even though I'm mangling it, is pregnancy is one of these things which we have not shortened the time investment on. It is a major, and not just time, it's a, it's a life investment in ways that a vacation to Maui is not. It is a life investment in ways that um, uh, even a, a seemingly meaningful relationship with somebody is not. And the competition for the, the resources of women's time, energies, commitments, passions, careers, all the rest, there's just a lot more competition for those things that comes in an age of, of abundance. Um, and as a libertarian, you are literally powerless to do anything about it. That's, that's right. Um, and, and, and opportunity cost. Obviously, a woman who stays at home taking care of children uh, has to interrupt her career and therefore earn less money than, than, than a male who just carries on. Uh, look, um, you know, we all have different roles to play uh, when it comes to this particular issue. Um, there are plenty of good economists on both left and right who agree that one of the reasons for driving up the costs of having children is, uh, is the problem with housing. And the fact that we just don't build enough houses, um, uh, you know, they're getting expensive. And that may be, uh, you know, one, one, one way in which uh, the government, by doing less, uh, could actually improve the situation. Then your own colleague, Charles Murray, talks about um, how the elites live by, uh, by, by sort of virtues uh, which they do not emphasize or promote amongst the lower classes. And uh, that, that's a huge disservice. So that, that's his particular role to play in this, in this debate at this juncture. Um, mine was to try to address one particular a subject in this book, and that was what is happened to resources. Um, is it true when Bill Maher says to his millions of people, the biggest problem with the world is that people are using too many resources? Is it true when crazy people take up guns in order to shoot their fellow human beings because we have we have too many people in the world? That was that was a subject that I was trying to tackle in this book, but mm -hmm. uh, but other people will have different answers to. 
um, you know, what, what you need to do about the falling falling birth rates. When it comes to the Baumol effect, yes, it is discernible in, in our work in a sense that um, um, what we find, it's just the cost of labor, which is getting more expensive. Everything else relative to labor is declining. So obviously, when you have uh, goods or services which rely on human labor more than other things, which may rely, for example, on, on machinery, um, those are going to be more expensive. But one of the exercises we did in the book was to look at um, plastic surgery. Uh, and that is because, as you know, um, for a variety of reasons, in my view, partly because of, of uh, government interference and subsidies, healthcare in this country has increased tremendously relative to wages, right? So what we wanted to do was to look at one area of uh, service delivery, especially healthcare delivery, where the market is allowed to function without too much government interference, without too many regulations and subsidies because uh, cosmetic surgery is elective. And uh, virtually all of them are falling in time price, meaning relative to wages, you can now afford uh, you can now afford more hair removal and chin <laughs> transplants and breast uh, enhancements and whatever else. So the, the argument we are making is that even if the Baumol effect is in, well, it's an effect, uh, even right. if it works, you can still mitigate the problem of rising um, um, services costs by basically getting out of the way and letting the market do its magic. Otherwise, you would expect uh, uh, the cost of, of cosmetic surgeries to go up. In fact, they've gone down. Yeah, I should have had you explain the Baumol effect rather than me trying to pry it out of my... No, you've done, you've done a great job, yeah. Gout. Hey, so like, the, what's one of the great ironies of this? You wrote a book about superabundance, got this giant cornucopia on the front page, and I'm just getting over a bout of gout, which just seems like metaphorically a perfect example of why I'm talking about, about the downsides of, of abundance. Um, so let's, I promised listeners that we would do this. And I think it's important to do one, just sort of run through some people in a more concrete way. So people can understand what you mean by things have gotten cheaper, you know, and how people are living better off. I mean, I think people understand it in broad brushstrokes, but you know, give someone some ammunition to, to, be able to sort of make this case to their uh, highly skeptical progressive aunt or uncle. So um, if, if they buy the book, then they will see these beautiful, colorful charts full of, full of the data. And we have 18 different data sets, which can be divided into two subgroups. One deals with the world. In other words, what's been happening to standards of living, um, uh, uh, you know, in, in the rest of the world. And then the second part is what's been happening to standards of living in the United States. So I'm going to focus on the United States since we have mostly an American audience. And I'm going to talk about resource abundance from the perspective of unskilled labor in the United States, okay? I'm not going to be talking about blue-collar worker, uh, somebody working on a uh, in a car factory. Uh, forget about averages. I'm not looking at average wages here because, you know, I don't want our data and our findings to be skewed by very wealthy people um, in the United States. I'm just going to be looking at availability of resources relative to unskilled wages in the United States between 1850 and 2018. So for the same amount of work that an unskilled laborer, let's say a janitor, needed to work in 1850 to buy one pound of rice, he can now buy 53 pounds of rice. 
The same amount of work which bought him one pound of tea will now get him 51 pounds of tea. Same amount of work which bought him in 1851 pound of pork will now get him 36 pounds of pork. Um, and I have a lot of food items that people can look at. Mm-hmm. But let me also talk a little bit about s- stuff that is grown or that is mined. Um, because obviously, the cheaper the input, the cheaper the output. So, you know, we still wear a lot of cotton clothing. And if you look at the price of cotton relative to unskilled laborers' wages, then, then instead of one pound of cotton in 1850, you now get 33 pounds of cotton. Other things, um, you know, copper. Uh, instead of one pound, it's now 15 pounds. Zinc, instead of one pound, it's now six pounds. So, um, you know, copper goes into things like uh, wiring and um, gosh knows what else. Uh, well, uh, and, 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 and um, by making it cheaper relative to, relative to income, you're also making it more affordable in terms of, uh, in terms of outcomes uh, or outputs. So whether you look at that now then then another thing which we did was we looked at finished goods from 1979 to 2019 and the reason for that was that um, a lot of people have this impression when you read newspapers that that somehow the 1970s were the golden era right <laughs> and then uh, um, and then you know, things just gotten much more expensive since the 1970s because Reagan came in and there was deregulation and we opened up to the rest of the world and globalization started. And therefore, um, you know, I, I chose 1979 because that's like the last full year. Maybe it's the second last full year of, of um, Jimmy Carter's presidency. And also because it was easy because I got hold of the 1979 Sears catalog. So I could com- <laughs> so I could compare the prices of pens and uh, vacuum cleaners uh, in 1979 to the ones in 2019. So uh, let's just take something as a vacuum cleaner. Um, for the price of one in 1979, you now get six. Uh, food processor for the price of one, you now get seven. Um, coffee maker, you get three. Um, uh, I don't know a men's suit. For the price of one in 1979, now you get three. Um, you know, looking at women, um, or, or rather looking at children, uh, I don't know, a crib. Instead of one, you now get four. Uh, women's clothing, uh, things like a blazer of equivalent quality. Instead of one, you now get three. Um, sweaters, instead of now, you get two. So uh, these are the sorts of things that that occupied us for the last three years to look up <laughs> to look up these items that that ordinary people may want. We are not looking at Lamborghinis. We are looking at pants and socks and vacuum cleaners and and beef and pork. And then we just compare it to wages and we see how much cheaper things have gotten, even though incomes in the United States continue to increase. There are a couple other things that are worth pointing out here, which you know, you, you get at in various ways in, in the book as well, which is that an hour of work in the agriculture or manufacturing sector in 1850 or 1870 or 1920 was off the charts more dangerous mm-hmm. <laughs> than an hour of work for an unskilled laborer, right? And, and that is not even counting the fact that if you were injured, the medical thing, the medical remedies available to you up until, you know, basically until antibiotics were of limited utility. So like, you know, this, even the hour of work thing, which I think is an extremely useful way to sort of transcend the numerical miasma 
it still leaves out that like uh at least in in a lot of cases the manual the unskilled worker is working in air conditioning the unskilled worker has access to a toilet on the premises i mean there are like a very long list of things that make unskilled labor less demeaning less grueling um less dangerous than um that our nostalgia would sort of indicate. You know, I recently reviewed this, this book, which I enjoyed a great deal, which said we were all better off as serfs, that we're just happy or better off people. And it's one of those kinds of assertions that I've heard all my life traveling in the circles I do on the right, where you have all these people who are nostalgic. It's sort of like, um, I wrote about this recently. It's sort of like, uh, I don't know if you remember, but the big fad for reincarnation in the 1970s where, you know, you would have these movie stars saying that, you know, I was a, I was a, a, a Russian princess in the 1400s or whatever. No one ever says I was the, I was the assistant piss boy on some, you know, incredibly like backward place where I was abused and whipped and I forced to sleep with the pigs. You know, it's always like, I, everything worked for me in the past and that's why I'm pissed. It's not working for me now. And um, this nostalgia that we have for how much better things were in the past is only possible if you filter out all of the inconvenient facts of life, forget 500 years ago, 50 years ago. And, oh, that's right. um, and I think it's just, we need like, to, it's important to correct people on that stuff. Yeah, no, that, that, that's, uh, that, that's right. Um, you know, the problem I'm encountering is that I, I'm basically an economic historian, right? And uh, mm-hmm. if, 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 there is, if there are two things that kids love to, uh, uh, kids hate learning, it's economics and history. So, you know, Billy, do you want to <laughs> study economics? No. Do you want to study history? Hell no. How about economic history? You know, is that going to get your juices flowing? And, but, but, but without economic history, uh, you really don't, um, you, you cannot appreciate just, just how incredibly different standards of living were. So I'm 45, but when I was growing up in communist Czechoslovakia, we had some family who lived in the rural areas and we would go out there and uh, women still uh, grew and dug potatoes um, without any sort of technology, just, just by hand. And so I had a very elderly uh, sister of my grandmother who was basically a peasant worker and uh, she, she was bent over. I mean, she couldn't straighten her spine because she was spending, um, you know, a large chunk of the year bent over in the fields, um, you know, picking potatoes or whatever. Uh, Horse-drawn, uh, uh, you know, transport um, when, when I was little was still very much on display. And that's just 40 years of, of, of difference that all of those things have now disappeared. Now, part of it had to do with the fact that obviously we dropped communism. Um, but uh, part of it had to do with just a general uh, march of human progress. Another way in which time prices uh, do not give you a full picture of how good things are is that it's impossible really to a good job accounting for quality improvements. So, you know, you, you, can, you can sort of pick uh, a, a similar of a vacuum cleaner in 1979 to the one that you can buy now, but even the most basic vacuum cleaner will have features which the 1979 model didn't have, and all those all those increases in um, um, in in quality are not translated into time prices. Nonetheless, 
Uh, as you have intimated earlier in the interview, uh, time prices are still good because it allows you to get around um, all, all, all sorts of other things which bedevil, bedevil uh, measurements of improvement of standard living. One is, one is the inflation adjustment, is that many people in our world distrust the government statistics, and I think some of those reasons are ridiculous, but many of them are, are uh, um, you know, unobjectionable. Um, another reason is that everybody has 24 hours in a day, and you, you can really compare standards of living of somebody in India with somebody, somebody in the United States. Well, one of the funny little, funny little calculations we did was um, uh, comparing Raj in India with Ray in Indiana and, and what happens to the concept of time inequality, which we introduce in the book. So let's say in 1960, Raj in India had to work for eight hours to buy his daily meal. Which, which is not that uncommon in the developing world, in poor countries, is that you work the entire day in order to be able to buy, buy one square meal in the evening. And um, maybe Ray in Indiana was working for an hour a day in order to buy his meal in 1960. Again, not, not completely outlandish concept, given where the standards of living were in 1960. And then by the time you get to 2020, um, you know, Raj's amount of work drops to one hour and Ray's to only seven minutes. Um, so that means that Raj in, in India has gained like seven hours of free time to do other things. And, and Ray has, has, uh, um, Ray has gained like 53 minutes. So who is better off? Well, on some measure, Ray is better off because in Indiana, he only has to work seven minutes instead of an hour, but the Indian guy has gained seven hours of free time. Whereas the Indiana guy only 53 minutes of free time. So um, measuring it that way actually gives you a sense of how inequality, it's, it's a good measure of inequality. Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, that raises a bunch of questions. On the, just on the, on the improvement point, I mean, one obvious way that I think most people can understand is that whatever the amount of hours it takes to earn a, enough money to buy a bottom line basic car, the bottom line basic car today versus 40 years ago, 50 years ago, is just... Or it may aesthetically, it may be worse. I'm I'm open to that. Um, but uh, in terms of the functionality, in terms of um, the gas consumption, in terms of the you know just you know the availability of, of Bluetooth and air conditioning and power windows and safety features and airbags and all those kinds of things, the car today even if it was still one-to-one time, and I'm sure it's not, um, the car today is just infinitely safer. And people, there are a lot of people who discount that, particularly certain kinds of men who discount that and don't care about that. But if you're thinking about the car you want your daughter to drive or your son to drive, all of a sudden you kind of might appreciate the, the, the improvements in things. I do feel that phone technology in a weird way has gotten worse because phones now just being a one app among many on our mobile supercomputers, the quality of the phone connection on cell service is still not as good as it was on landlines, I would argue. But that's that's a small trade-off. And it's part of the example of the jagged means of progress. I do on this point, and I, 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 this is a completely new question for me, and I'm just wondering because you spend a lot more time looking at these kinds of things. Samuel Huntington once made the point that one of the great sources of stability in India in, the, I would say, the 70s and 80s and early 90s um, was that contrary to a lot of Western sort of beliefs that all good things go together, 
was the lack of literacy among the Indian masses and that a sudden onset of, of, of literacy could be politically destabilizing because hundreds of millions of poor people would recognize, first of all, what a raw deal they have, but also would um, start making demands on the system that the system wasn't ready to catch up with. And so literacy allowed a lot, illiteracy allowed a lot of people in India to sort of essentially be comfortable with quasi-serfdom. And I'm probably butchering Huntington's point, and I don't want to be unfair to him. This was something I read 25 years ago. But um, when you talk about this massive gain in free time for poor people in the developing world, um, is that, I mean, in, in the abstract sense, that's all upside. But in the real world, practical political sense, is that all upside? Because it seems to me poor people who are on the, who've been on the losing end of the sick of the political system for a very long time who all of a sudden have a lot of free time on their hands, that could be very politically destabilizing. I mean, there's a reason why, and you know this stuff, we've talked about this stuff before, most revolutionaries are not poor people. Most, revolution, most of the famous revolutionaries from around the world um, come from the ranks of the bourgeois because they had the free time to sort of say, I want to be a revolutionary. You know, as, as Deirdre McCloskey pointed out somewhere, I think it was in a review of the Schumpeter book, you know, the people picking up the paving stones in 1968 in Paris um, and throwing them through windows weren't construction workers. They were young, you know, they were young professionals. They were yuppies. Is, long-term, I understand the reasons for optimism, but is there, is there, are there political destabilizing externalities to, to these trends that policymakers should be more cognizant of? Um, I haven't thought about it as much as you have. Um, the, I just thought about it now. Yeah. So I, you know, um, <laughs> I mean, the 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 but but there may well be something to it. Uh, I say it simply because I've been thinking a lot about what's been going on in Chile. Mm -hmm. um, Chile uh, has been a tremendous economic success story. Um, uh, from the second poorest country in South America, it is now by far the richest country in South America. And uh, when people became wealthy enough, where absolute poverty was no longer a concern, um, you know, two years ago, they had this massive attempt at a revolution uh, to try to destroy the system that made them rich. And only last Sunday, um, this what, September 4th, they had a referendum on a new constitution, which would basically destroy the, the economic model which Chile had and which made it prosperous and replace it with an insane progressive document. And the Chileans said no. But that was a close call, even though the referendum itself was something like 62% to 38 um, for a while there, during the mass protests, it looked like the Chilean government could collapse and the far left could take over. And, and so that would be a typical example of something that you are talking about, that once people acquire a certain level of, um, of well-being, they move up the Maslow pyramid of mm. needs, right? They are no longer concerned with shelter and food and water and personal security. But now what they desire is to live in a society which reflects their own personal values. So if I'm, say, an egalitarian or somebody who's left-minded um, and I have all of my basic needs taken care of, what I'm going to devote my life to is uh, protesting and getting rid of a system which I perceive to be unjust. Um, that being said, uh, it is 
most of the developing world is not where Chile is. Basically, mm -hmm. the entire continent of Africa is still much poorer than where the Chileans are, right? So if there are going to be massive increases in political instability, I suspect that they are not going to be like the whole world is on fire, but they are going to um, they're going to break out in countries depending on their particular conditions and level of development. Yeah, I mean, and this is, I mean, again, we're just BSing here, but like, this is maybe the upside of the guys staying home, smoking pot, and playing video games, which is that if you believe, and I'm not saying, I, this is just purely conjecture, but like, if you believe that these people are the losers in these economic changes that are going on in our economy, right? That they are, that the, the status, the, the jobs that they can get or that they think they can get, which I think is an important distinction, are low status. And so therefore, as males, because males tend to be idiots, um, they choose not to compete at all. In the 19th century and early 20th century, you had, you know, uh, all sorts of ugly populist political movements that sprung up from people feeling like they were being left on the sidelines of social and economic progress. And now it turns out that you can en entertain yourself on those sidelines in ways that maybe you won't rise up. Again, I could be completely wrong about this. I'm not trying to minimize or diminish important issues, but it just goes to show that there's, my only point is, is that context changes and that, easy glib rules about one size fits all social change just doesn't work. It's, it's going to be jagged as you were saying earlier. Yeah. I, um, like, like you, I'm faced with a, with a new phenomenon, uh, the, the, the missing men, the withdrawal from the workforce. And I'm just hoping that things will sort themselves out, uh, partly because of economic necessity. I'm, I'm hoping that part of the, population which is refusing to come back to the workforce is because they are living off, uh, um, you know, savings and they are living off state grants. And those things, uh, you know, the savings will run out and state grants that can be that can be affected by policy change. Um, we, we, we could have a determined policy by by the government to increase our work participation rate from 61% or whatever it is currently to 75%, which is what it is, I believe, in the United Kingdom and the Nordic countries. Um, it, it can be done. All right, so in the time we have left, because I, uh, I keep sandbagging you with, with, with hand-wringing neocon questions, say you're, you're talking to a open-minded, well-intentioned, but kind of in a bubble. I don't, I don't know why we're talking so much about Bill Maher, but Bill Maher fan, right? Who thinks that having a kid is a net bad for society and for the environment and that the environment um, itself is on the precipice of disaster. How do you talk him off the ledge? What do you say? That's a, that's a that's a great question, uh, which I haven't thought about. But I guess the first thing that springs to mind is: let's say that you are concerned about uh, cancer, or you are concerned about um, plastic in the ocean. Um, who is going to come up with with a solution to these problems? It has to come from. Uh, other human beings. It has to come from the human mind. We have to figure it out how to do it. And 
I would remind that person of the myriad of ways in which we have encountered problems before, which we have solved. Um, I would remind him of uh, or her of uh, penicillin. I would remind them of electricity. Uh, I would remind them of uh, uh, John Borlaug and his uh, amazing green revolution. Um, these massive improvements in human standards of living didn't happen because of, uh, um, of, of gods uh, sending fire down to us, uh, to us. They happened because of Prometheus grabbing the fire by himself. Right. Um, and I have plenty of examples where I could point to how the world is improving. I could point to the fact that in Israel, 92% of fresh water is being recycled and that Israel now has desalinating plants and so much water that it is able to export water to the surrounding Arab countries, even though they have practically no fresh water reserves. In other words, the problem of supposedly declining reservoirs of fresh water can be resolved by the fact that the world is covered in water. It's just the wrong kind, and we have to convert it from the wrong kind to the right kind. I could point to agricultural gains. I could say that through genetically modified foods, we can create crops which no longer need so much uh, pesticide and uh, so much fertilizer. Uh, they may not even need that much water. And if agricultural produce needs water, well, there is smart agriculture which tells you that you can give every plant a little microchip, which will alert you to how many drops of water they need and when. Um, I could talk about um, the, the progress that is being made in uh, modular nuclear reactors, small reactors, which can be carried on a truck to places where uh, that need electricity or breakthroughs that have been happening the last couple of months in, in fusion technology and how it is perfectly within the scope of human um, life to, our lifetimes to have plentiful and affordable energy that will emit no um, CO2 into the atmosphere and be safer than the one that, that we currently have. Um, so, you know, I could talk to them about plastic and the fact that scientists are working on all sorts of things, including uh, um, other chemicals and even biological life, uh, a particular type of worm, which is able to eat plastic and uh, um, destroyed that way. So the, the old George Carlin joke about, you know, in the future, it will be just planet and plastics may not necessarily be true. We might be able to get the plastic out of the, uh, out by, by other means. All that's required is two things. We need more people because only people are capable of producing these ideas and we need freedom. This is an important part which we didn't talk about, but I mean, I think it's implied between the two of us and also your audience. And that is that China and India had been most populous countries in the world for a very long time, but they were dirt poor until they gave their people a modicum of political and economic freedom. So you need people, but they also need to be free, uh, free to think, um, free to write, um, uh, to exchange ideas and then to implement them. Um, that's very important. Yeah, I mean, this gets to, I mean, you have a great section, which um, I was diving into this morning on, you know, this question, which, you know, in my book, I kind of punted and said, you know, no, we don't really know where the miracle of the last 300 years comes from. There are a lot of good theories, but no one can agree on them and all this kind of stuff. You kind of invest in the uh, the constant state of war and the 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 decentralization of political power mm -hmm. uh, of Europe is one of the main drivers. And I, I'm totally open to the argument. I think it's it's a necessary but maybe not sufficient part of the argument. Um, 
but uh, I think that's right. Is that this that that the you need freedom? You need people to be have the freedom to say dumb things. To be put it bluntly, to have really crazy, stupid ideas, because like the monkeys banging on typewriters, you get enough people doing it. One of them, one of those ideas is actually just going to seem stupid and crazy, and in, rea- in reality, change the world. And um, you need the freedom to sort of kick the tires of these things and work these things out and not have this sort of stultifying wet blanket from above that thinks all the important questions have been answered and therefore we don't need to sort of veer off the path and explore new solutions to things. I, I do wonder, though, like, you know, you and I are both uh, dabblers in evolutionary psychology, and um, um, we're there's a specific mindset. I, I get the negativity bias. You're more likely to pass on your genes if every time the bushes rustle, you think there might be a lion there, right? Because one time in a hundred, you're right. And you're not eaten by a lion. But if you think every time the, 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 the bushes rustle, you think it's a new Christmas pony, likely you're going to get eaten by a lion. And so like uh, negativity and, fo- and fear of danger is a one way to stay alive in, in the Pleistocene. I get all that. I get those kinds of biases. What I don't get is where do you think the evolutionary programming comes from that says, let's treat our problems like a chronic disease rather than try and come up with a cure? And specifically, say, with um, climate change. I'm, I'm persuaded, and, and our again, our mutual friend Ron Bailey is the guy who persuaded me that, that climate change is real and it's significant and it's something to worry about. It may not be as significant and as worrisome as some people want it to be, but it's definitely a real thing. Um, why not try to solve it, right? I mean, that's the, I mean, the idea that somehow it's sort of the Paul Ehrlich types, they win the diagnosis argument, whether they're right or wrong, and and because they won the diagnosis argument, they they somehow have the expertise and authority um, for the prescription argument. Yeah. And the two things are not linked. I mean, like, there are lots of people qualified to tell me that we need a bridge between, you know, this side of the river and the other side of the river. But most of the people who tell me that aren't the people good at building bridges. And um, it seems to me like, you know, fusion solves all of these problems. There are lots of things that, I mean, like, literally, if we have fusion, not only could we solve the freshwater problems that we have, you could actually take the fight to climate change, because then when, when energy is just infinitely abundant, you can set up giant scrubbers that pull the CO2 out of the air. And, you know, the, the knee-jerk opposition to things like, you know, the geoengineering and all these kinds of things, what is the, where, is, where does that come in our brains from this fear of, grabbing the problem by the horns and trying to solve it rather than just simply treat it? Well, I think there are two questions implied in, in what you just said. One is um, the, the, the broader attitude to solutionism. And the second one is an attitude of some people toward a solution that could work, but is then rejected. So the, the, when it comes to the first question, um, 
solutionism, innovism, whatever you want to call it, Deirdre McCoskey called it innovism, is, is very recent. Uh, in other words, people until very recently, let's assume that we are really 300,000 years old, as, as some evidence seems to suggest. Well, we never thought really of eliminating problems until very recently. Um, we never thought about getting rid of entire diseases. You know, it would never occur to our ancestors that um, you can make a decision as a society to identify a virus, then um, create a cure for it in under 12 months and then get everybody vaccinated. That, that, that sort of a mind frame is the mind frame of the 18th century of the Enlightenment, right? Everybody before then simply assumed that sickness, uh, hunger, uh, rapine, murder was simply something that would be done, was always done and would be done for eternity. The reason why I think the 18th century is so crucial is that people for the first time thought to themselves, you know what, these problems that humanity has been suffering with or under for millennia uh, could actually be resolved. But that's, that's 200 years of our evolutionary history. So I'm not at all surprised that, that when people are seeing a problem such as, uh, I don't know, um, running out of resources, that they simply assume that we are going to be stationary and allow the problem to overcome us and consume us. Um, they, they, they do not account for the dynamism of technological change because there never was dynamism of technological change. Do you see what I mean? Mm -hmm. But then you have the second question, which I think was implied, and that is, why do people sometimes reject technological solutions? Now, I've been at Cato for 20 years, and it's always been, uh, it's always been told to us uh, very forcefully that we never impugn people's motives, right? And I never do that. But sometimes I cannot help but think about impugning people's motives. If you speak to some of these extreme environmentalists and you say to them, Okay, so we are flushing too many pesticides and uh, too much fertilizer down our rivers into the oceans. But we could have GMO crops which don't need the pesticide and fertilizer, and therefore we can produce as much food as we need without environmental damage. And they say no. Okay, right. so you think that's weird. Then you have something like energy. So, you know, gas powered uh, station, uh, power stations are by far the most. Um, uh, by, by far the most economically sound way of powering civilization. But let's assume that you have a complete revulsion against fossil fuels and we need we really need to get away from them. Okay, so we have a technology on Earth. We've been having it for 80 years. It's called nuclear that we can use in order to power civilization without any CO2 emissions into the atmosphere. And the answer is no, we don't want that. You know, And I suspect, I suspect, Jonah, is that if tomorrow... Uh, there would be a fundamental break with a uh, fundamental discovery within the fusion systems. And it would look like we can now safely embark on creating fusion future that these same people would say, stop, don't do it because of God knows what, what issues. And that's sort of a mind frame I cannot understand. Steven Pinker likes to talk about the fact that pro if, if there is one group of people who hate progress, it's the progressives. Okay, that's what he discovered after publishing his book. And that kind of a mind frame is that when you actually come up with a solution to a problem and somebody tells you, no, 
just to just to have that problem um, on his or her mind for eternity. That I cannot get behind. Now, perhaps, perhaps, and there is a section devoted to this in the book, um, is that is that there are people who need to believe in the apocalypse in order to cope with living full stop. So when bad things happen to the world, some religious people look at the apocalypse of as a reaffirmation of their worldview, which is that, you know, Jesus coming or whatever. But there are also there are also secular people who derive meaning from the apocalypse. Maybe they are disenchanted by the world. They hate capitalism and what it has done to the pristine world of yesteryear. And um, and by by seeing these problems coming toward us that we can solve through technological change if we apply our brains to it, and which will only overwhelm us if, if there is no technological change. They would rather have those apocalyptic predictions fulfilled because they enforce and they reaffirm the worldview which they already have. The pleasure, in other words, for them is not from seeing us overcoming those problems, which is what how you and I would react. The pleasure, the the uh, the utility uh, they get from from uh, from apocalyptic potential is that it reaffirms their already held worldview. Did that make any sense? Yeah, no, no. I, I think there's, <laughs> there's definitely something to it. I mean, it's it's a difficult. Like, I'm a big. I'm really fascinated by what was Donald Brown as a sociologist talked about human universals. Um, these things that exist in every single culture mm-hmm. everywhere mm-hmm. across time. Right. Mm-hmm. And so it's, 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 it's a way of, for those who think everything is subjective and relativistic, it is a way for illuminating what the actual factory preset programming of humanity is because despite very different religions, very different economic systems, very different time, place, geography, um, there are just certain things that are, that are universal, certain taboos, certain this, certain that. And I, I, I think that there is something definitely in us about apocalypticism um, that uh, manifests itself in, in interesting and different ways, um, but undergirds an enormous amount of things. And so one of the things I often think about is if you look at there, there's something about progressivism going back to the original progressives, you know, Auguste Comte and all those guys that um, is very committed to reducing human societies to, to material things, which is one of the great ironies of, of the work that you do is you actually say, you, know, you take the fight to the people who think everything's about material things and say, you've got that part wrong. But anyway, um, that you know, they, they, they pull the transcendent, they pull the spiritual out of the equation. You know, Marx is all about, you know, dialectical materialism. It's all about, you know, the, 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 the philosophers are all about the things you can do with science, you know, in the real world, the physical world, and not make, um, you know, not finding God in the gaps or whatever. And then there's, a, there's the other side of things, at least in the Ameri- sort of Anglo-American tradition, sort of cultural conservatives who focus much more on the, I'm not saying necessarily purely spiritual, but the sort of philosophical, the immaterial, the, the transcendent, the notion of the dangers of bad ideas and these kinds of things. And, and so the apocalypticism of the right in, in my lifetime, um, and probably going back another 50 something years, um, 
has always focused on attitudes, right? It's much more like Cato the Elder. It's always like these damn kids, they don't believe the right things. It's about, um, uh, you know, the, 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 the fabric of society is coming apart. And you can look at when I started doing pundit, when I started this stuff in the early 90s in Washington, you know, my, my boss, this guy, Ben Wadberg, I worked on this book called Values Matter Most. And it was all about how values are everything. And it was, and it pointed to like discipline in school and, 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 and uh, the coarsening of the popular culture. And it, it's, and what's, what's remarkable to me is that the discourse about the decline of the culture and the fraying of the social fabric has only intensified for the last 40 years, even though a vast number of the things on the list of terribles um, have been solved or not, or, or fallen off because they're not problems. I mean, crime in the early 90s was a much, much bigger problem to, than today. And it's just like there's this orientation that says the that dangerous ideas and habits and and loss of faith in God is the problem and they'll just replace whatever things to complain about with other things if they fall off the list. And on the left, it's much more, you know, it's much more secular. It's much more material. So for a long time, it was the population bomb. Before that, it was, there was also like global cooling. Now it's global warming. Um, I'm not saying there aren't legitimate things there, but what's interesting to me is how much uniformity there are in the two views in the sense that so often, if you listen closely, you find protagonists on the two sides of these things talking about how essentially it is our own personal sins that are bringing upon us these calamities. You know, I remember, you know, I remember Al Gore talking about how this hurricane was coming because of our, our consumerist sins. Um, uh, I remember Pat Robertson saying a hurricane was coming because of gay marriage, <laughs> right? It's, it's, there is this idea is that somehow the hurricane has to be, you know, the gods are sending these things to us because of our failures, our personal yeah. failures. And it, it places us at this, it's sort of like the inflection point thing. It places us individually or as a species as the driver of all things, whether it's the secular materialist argument or it's the spiritual argument. And I, th- I just think it's, a, it's one of these common things you find across all cultures. This is like all of our problems must be because we did something wrong, right? The gods are angry because we did something wrong. Nature is angry because we did something wrong. And sometimes we did do something wrong, although the causal effect still may not be there. But it's a, it's a mindset that makes a lot of sense when you think about us in the evolutionary period where anytime you did something and there was a good effect, you're like, we got to do that again. And that's where you get a lot of rituals. So I cannot speak to other cultures, but I do think that there was a fundamental break with how we understood, um, you know, gods and uh, our own uh, actions uh, with, with the rise of Christianity. If you look at, uh, if you look at Greek or Roman religion, the Greeks and Romans didn't think that, because, that, that bad things happened to them because they did something wrong. They just assumed that gods were bastards and took some sort of a sadistic pleasure from inflicting horrible, um, horrible misery on ordinary people. But with, with the rise of... But you of could Christian- piss off the gods too, though, right? I mean, you, that's you, the whole point of hubris and all of that, right? You, you, you could, you could. But just as often, they, they, they simply did it to just screw around with us. <laughs> right. Um, now, 
Now, I wonder to what extent, for example, to, to play off your previous point, to what extent, um, I mean, how can you not see the intimations of Christianity in uh, environmentalism? You know, we've had 2,000 years of, of living within this, uh, within the Christian, Judeo-Christian sort of mental uh, milieu, if you want. And, and when you look at environmentalism, which is often promulgated by people who are not religious in any traditional sense, but what are the facets of extreme environmentalism? Well, first of all, you have the concept of Garden of Eden, which is Earth before industrialization. You have your devils, uh, your, your devil, fossil fuels and the fossil fuel companies, devil and his little helpers. You have the high priesthood, the IPCC, the academics, etc. You have your saints. You have Greta Thunberg of this world. Uh, you even have uh, indulgences, right? Like the, the, what, what Luther was so upset about vis-a-vis -vis the Catholic Church. I mean, nowadays, if you are rich enough, let's say that you are Duke of Sussex or, uh, uh, I don't know, a, a, a famous actor, you can certainly fly a few miles uh, on, on a private jet or transatlantic in a private jet. All you do is you cut a check to some green environmental organization, and all your sins are forgiven. So it's very interesting to see how those two concepts map on top of each other. Um, these people may not recognize Christian uh, intimations in it because they have never been Christians, um, but, the, but the framework is the same. No, I agree with that, we, and we're going long here. Um, but it's also, I mean, the idea of a golden age um, of an Edenic, pristine past that was sullied by human beings is pretty common out there. It's yeah. not just Judeo-Christian. And it's also, you know, it's also very, I mean, it's funny. It's also very secular if you just look at how people talk about, like, how they imagined Native Americans living mm -hmm. in North America prior to the Columbian Exchange. And, or even now, there's these, these goofball sort of fads about, how awesome the original sort of aboriginal Celtic druid type people of England were, you know, how great, how great they were as stewards of the environment prior to the, the evil foreign Roman intrusions or whatever. Anyway, we don't need to go down these wells, but um, I do really want to tell people, and I, I'm sorry that your, your co-author Gail Pooley is not here as well. It's just a spectacular piece of work. It's extremely useful um, and getting it for, kids in college, but also to settle any number of bar bets. Um, um, never mind writing interesting theses or just informing yourself. Um, I cannot recommend superabundance enough. It's the story of population growth, innovation, and human flourishing on an infinitely bountiful planet. Uh, Marion Tupi, thanks so much for being here. Thank you for having me. All right, so uh, my friend, as you can probably tell, he's my friend, uh, Marion Tupi has left the studio. Uh, I am totally and completely sincere that I think the uh, um, uh, the book is just a really impressive piece of work, incredibly useful. It moves the ball down the field in important ways, um, and I highly recommend it. And um, and I recommend uh, Marion's website, humanprogress.org, which is just incredibly useful as well. Um, and uh, uh, people should check out the, the morning dispatch on, from Tuesday, September 6th. We have all sorts of announcements about our big uh, confab in Naples after the election. Um, it's now official that uh, 
Ala Pundit, probably the among the, the very finest um, pundit bloggers of the golden era, of the golden age, is joining the dispatch. Um, and uh, just super excited uh, for all the fun and exciting things that are coming down the pike as well. So with that, um, I'm going to um, leave you now and uh, go do other vital, important things and attend to my the what remains of my gout um, and the uh, the various chemicals running through my body that may have made me sound stranger than I normally sound um, dealing with it. And uh, other than that, I will see you next time. Nie, Jonah, nie uvidíš ma, lebo toto je podcast.